Welcome, everyone, to the 12th episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast, the podcast on all things geopolitics and forecasting. Today, we are joined by Michael Story and Tom Lipte, the co-founders of Maybe. Maybe is a forecasting platform to help companies and investors forecast better. Companies often have internal ways of forecasting revenues or market trends, but few use the more scientific techniques and methodologies of quantified forecasting that we like to explore at Global Guessing. Both Tom and Michael are renowned super forecasters and former employees of Good Judgment. Each of our guests today have extremely impressive CVs. Uh, Tom, if you guys will remember, was also on the right side of maybe last week, uh, which we'll ask them to run through once we get started. First, Tom and Michael, welcome to the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, so we'd like to get started on both of your guys' backgrounds, both as super forecasters as well as business partners. Uh, how did you guys meet and how did you guys um, get into becoming super forecasters? Well, crikey. Um, so, yeah, Tom, Tom and I, I think we, we first met when we, went, um, when we were both just amateur forecasters who were uh, volunteers with the Good Judgment Project. Um, so I think that's when we first we first met, wasn't it, Tom? We we, we didn't um, <clears throat> we were actually employees at the time, and then we both uh, worked at Good Judgment Project for a while um, and got to know each other there, and uh, and then we decided to tackle a new challenge on our own, and uh, we we paired off and and did that. Yeah, and um, what drew you guys to the Good Judgment Project? Um, did you guys forecast together um, on the same team while you're at Good Judgment? Um, well, during the during the research phase, Michael and I never forecast together. But then um, once there was the for-profit spinoff, I think we probably did at least a little bit of forecasting, um, just as on the on the super for, on the super forecaster platform. And so, while you guys were at Good Judgment Inc., the the for-profit aspect of Good Judgment, Tom, you were the CFO, and Michael, you were one of the managing. Uh, directors, what were you guys sort of working on while you're at uh, Good Judgment? What was that um, experience like um, working f for Good Judgment? Well, it's it's very interesting. I mean, <clears throat> so uh, you know, to go for a research project to to try and turn that into a business is not at all straightforward. Even if you discover some technology that works, it's not a guarantee that you can make that pay for itself. So <clears throat> like it's actually quite a challenge to kind of try to figure out how things will work in a, in a commercial context away from, uh, away from a research one. So that was basically what we thought about all the time. So we had specific things we did, but I, that was basically the, the kind of the goal the whole time was how do, you, how do you take this thing that we figured out how to do and you know, apply it to, to kind of real world problems. So Tom and I used to do together one of the things you would do is we would go to clients and do uh, workshops with them and try and kind of figure out how we might be able to help them or how things that we knew how to do might be of use to to them you know banks and uh, insurance companies and a lot of financial industry uh, companies were quite interested in what we would do so that's the main thing that we did together um and it, it yeah i mean it, you know it's, it's not a straightforward it's it's, it's bizarre how, how tricky it is actually to go from to try and do that because you're suddenly in a totally different context. And um, I'm sure we'll talk more about that today, but it, 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 the social and, um, and structural context in which, in which forecasting takes place is, is like a really big part of whether it works or not. 
And so when you go from a research environment where you've recruited volunteers, like, you know, like, like Tom and me, we were volunteers, uh, to, you know, a, a, a corporation or something where you don't have the same, uh, you know, maybe you don't have the same level of enthusiasm or whatever, uh, then, uh, you know, you, you suddenly face a different set of challenges. So that's what we were always thinking about the whole, the whole time we worked together. And so what did you, sorry, go ahead, Clay. Yeah, just like, what were you guys, you were talking about the transition from research into the commercial aspect. Um, what did you find was the biggest impediment in terms of making that shift of forecasting from this very academic research based into more uh, commercial applications? And what did you find resonated best um, when talking to potential clients? I'll, I'll, I'll add something there. I mean, there's a few different aspects. There's you can look at other people's forecasts, like you might on on Metaculus. Um, you can try to do forecasting in your own um, internal team. Um, but even, I think I think forecasting on internal teams, there's a you have to do a there's a behavior change, and I think that that is a major hurdle. People one you don't one people don't even most people don't even know what forecasting is, even once they know what it is, you have to convince them that it works. Once they know that it works, they have to convince their teammates or maybe their boss. Um, they may not be comfortable with what could go wrong. Are there risks? Is this a threat to my status if I'm the boss and I'm bringing in, I'm having my teammates forecast on something that's important and it turns out that um, one of my direct reports is a better forecaster than me. That could be scary to people. Um, so there are all sorts of these um, potential hurdles that I think make it harder to adopt than I would have hoped. Would you say that um, it is more difficult or less difficult to sort of implement some of these, uh, like this forecasting mindset into um, sort of these private companies versus government institutions? Or is it about the same in terms of those dynamics that you just mentioned? I'd say about the same. I don't know if Michael has a different answer. I think, I think um, yeah, I, I think maybe the variance is higher in, in, in the private sector. I mean, they're also looking at different challenges as well, right? So in government, um, you know, the, the government sort of is almost like the forecast customer of last resort in that they basically have to forecast things that um, a lot of companies might just say, we're, we're just going to try and stay away from that whole area. We, you know, we, we just don't want to be exposed to that risk at all. So we don't care to quantify it because we just want to avoid it completely. Whereas governments basically have to care about some of these strange risks. They can't just try to operate around them. So, so to some extent, they're looking at different things. But I think the, um, yeah, I, I think the, the, where I've seen people really try and do it well would probably be more in the private sector. But, but there are also uh, a lot of the same examples that, that Tom talked about, like the, you know, it's a threat to the status. It's a, it's a change. It's different. Um, those things are all different. And also, you know, you're looking at different goals, right? I mean, when if you're forecasting something, um, say, uh, like like if you look at what Good Judgment Project was about, right? It was a, 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 a team competing in a forecasting competition that then took over that competition and kind of subdivided into little teams and stuff. But all the way through, you have the same setup, which is the government has a like list of topics they care about. Those get turned into questions. <clears throat> the questions go out to the forecasters and we compete to forecast them more accurately. But things like that process of creating the questions 
Um, that can, it doesn't matter if that takes quite a long time when it's a research project, because the goal is to just get, you know, is to identify the most accurate forecasting teams and within those teams, the best individuals. Once you're trying to do that commercially, you do have to care a lot about how quickly you can do things like that. And then you suddenly find these trade-offs, right? Because if you rush your question generation process, then you might have some, uh, you know, ambiguous wording that you didn't notice. And then suddenly you have a problem and then six months later, it turns out that half of your team were forecasting what one thing that they had in mind when they were looking at the question and that half the, you know, the other half looking at something else. So you suddenly face all of these different types of challenges as well that are logistical, not just to do with the psychology, but I would say that organizational psychology is probably the, the, the biggest factor. Were there certain characteristics um, not discriminating between government consumers of forecasting and private sector consumers of forecasting, but were there sort of common characteristics between those consumers that made them more likely um, to embrace this idea of quantified forecasting? And then conversely, were there characteristics of organizations, both public and private, that sort of were less um, uh, open to the idea of forecasting? Uh, I would say that it's difficult to tell. Um, character of the organization, I think, is difficult to spot. I think it probably comes down to more to the selection of the type of people that are in that organization. So if, if it's a very analytical culture and, and there are some, you know, there are some real um, consequences for getting things right or wrong, and you, and you, you know, you've recruited people that are comfortable with that, then those tend to be more comfortable with that type of forecasting. So I don't think it's a coincidence that, that the intelligence community is where all of this started and that's where the most interest is. And that's true in other governments, not just the US government, but you know, the, in the UK government is, is, is doing some interesting stuff there as well and other governments as well. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence that, because um, you, you, you could argue that they have to care more about forecasting than anybody else, but I'm not always sure that's true. I mean, right, if you were the health, department, you would care a lot about forecasting in terms of you know, pandemic preparedness or, or any of those type of issues. So it, it doesn't naturally follow that it would be the intelligence community. But I think that when you see the comfort with which, you know, the, the degree of comfort people have with analysis, then I think that's more of a, um, of a guide. I mean, I, this is a bit inside baseball, but like within government departments, I would say you definitely notice the more analytical departments because they tend to have like an EA chapter or something in the in the in the department. If they have an EA chapter, they're going to be fine with forecasting. If and by EA, you mean a, 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 a altruism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a big like effective altruism subculture in in the civil service in the UK at least. And the bigger the EA uh, uh, chapter in that department, then the the more confident you can be that's going to be fine. <laughs> Whereas if it's like if if uh, if maybe there's there's a little bit less of that analytical type. Um, uh, among the people who are recruited there, you see that a little bit less, uh, then it can be a bit harder. But it's, I mean, we're, we're talking about, I mean, I, I think our experience is still quite limited. So it's its not a kind of, like we can definitively say, oh, there's these easy signs to spot people that are, are likely to embrace this, this way of thinking. And you were just talking actually right there about sort of government adoption of forecasting, um, you know, given both your backgrounds with Good Judgment, which had uh, its ties to IARPA, uh, which is uh, the intelligence community's version of DARPA. 
um, which is my easier way of not remembering what all the acronyms uh, stand for. Um, but you guys therefore must have, a, as you were just alluding to in your answer, uh, a decent knowledge about the intersection of quantified forecasting and government operations. Um, you were just mentioning, you know, health forecasting, intelligence community. Um, do you know the ways in which forecast ding is being largely used by governments and sort of what the sort of key impediments and barriers might be to not only the adoption of forecasting but also making sure that you know forecasts are being used for impact not just sort of a thing that's also just sort of thrown into the analytical uh you know tool chest well i yeah okay. sorry go ahead tom tom you far yeah. away no this is, I this talk is too much you should take it <laughs> Well, I, I, I think that my answer is probably going to sound relatively pessimistic there, but my my impression is that it is pretty hard to to. I, I think people are more willing to try something novel, and forecasting formal forecasting is still seen as quite novel uh, on where where the, actually on inconsequential things. So if you wanted to, uh, for fun have a forecasting competition in your in your government department about who was going to win the rugby world cup nobody would object to that if you said i'm going to have a forecasting competition and it's going to be something operational you're going to have a lot of a lot more barriers to making that happen uh, because those things become more sensitive and one of the things that's interesting about um the uk and particularly you look at the pandemic response is that the minutes of the senior scientific panels that the UK convened to give assessments to the government about COVID uh, have, you know, the, the minutes are all published and you can read them and I've read them all. Um, and, you know, there's very, very little formal forecasting there. It, you know, it really is the old way of doing things. There's a, a meeting with a chair, the chair kind of gives their opinion and, um, and, and, and the kind of diversity of views gets a bit squashed. And there are lots of things that would make you think as a forecaster, oh, hang on, you're not making the best use of this team of people. There are some nice things you could do that could really help you get better information out of this team and get more accurate answer out of this team, but they're not happening. So I, I think that the, the more kind of significant the topic, almost the harder it is to, to apply forecasting to it just because it kind of feels trivial and it feels too novel. And when, when the chips are really down, there's, a, there's an instinct to revert to uh, very traditional ways of decision-making and traditional ways of like, of gathering and disseminating knowledge inside governments. So I think that it's very, very hard to do, to, I, I think the, yeah, the more consequential the, the topic, almost the harder it is to, 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 to formalize the discussion. And you can do that much more easily about something trivial. And I, in fact, I think in the minutes, there is one example in the early pandemic period of formal forecasting, but it's limited to think, you know, to something, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like, you know, the number of, of uh, beds that were going to come online in hospitals, right? So the hospital trying to increase the number of beds they could provide to sick people. And there was a, an effort to formally forecast that. And that shows up in the minutes. But like big stuff, like, um, uh, you know, is Taiwan going to suffer a, you know, a devastating wave of COVID at last Christmas uh, is not forecast. That's just kind of discussed in a, in a very... Uh, in, in a way that would, you know, would make us wince, uh, uh, you know, slightly to see, uh, to, to knowing that that there, there's probably a better way to do that. And Tom, is that sort of the opinion that you shared just regarding forecasting in, um, in, in government, within government bodies, rather? Sorry, I missed that. 
Oh, I was just asking, do you share Michael's uh, take on, on, on oh. forecasting within yeah. government bodies? Yeah, yeah, no. Mike, yeah, Michael knows <clears throat> a lot more than, than I do. But maybe the, maybe the one tidbit I'd add is it's hard enough to get people to forecast internally, which I, I think has, could help a lot of organizations and the government if they did it, but they don't. Um, but even if you look at Metaculus, being a, a, the consumer of forecasts, Metaculus provides really high quality forecasts on a, a really wide range of policy issues for free publicly. And at least I'm not, my, my hunch would be that most, uh, I, I guess I would be surprised if those Metaculous forecast made its way into actual um, policy discussions. My, my hunch is no, maybe I'm wrong and I'm, I'm not aware of it, but I think it, again, it just goes to the, the barrier of uh, just people aren't aware of forecasting, what it is, and they, uh, it's, it's getting adopted, but it, it takes longer than I would have hoped or expected. And, and Michael, sort of following up on your, like you talked about the the impact, right, of, of the forecast. So rugby more likely to forecast than, you know, an invasion of Taiwan if you're on the National Security um, Council in the United States, for instance, which would also be very relevant uh, to you given um, where you live. Um, but one sort of thing that came to mind was in, I, I believe it's Philip Tetlock's super forecasting. He talks about Obama's decision uh, to do the bin Laden raid. Um, and he was able to get sort of aggregate forecasts that came out to be, I, I, I believe it's 75% um, is a confidence that the intelligence community had that bin Laden um, was going to be there and the mission was going to be successful. And yet Obama, when he presented it, sort of the raid was a 50-50 decision. And um, as two super forecasters, uh, I'm sure that you are aware that there's a large difference between something happening 50% of the time versus 75% of the time. Um, and one of our colleagues, uh, uh, Mikhail Dabrowski, he brought up the point that uh, a quote from somewhere that people sort of view forecasts as either 0%, 100%, and 50%. And there really isn't sort of those in-between numbers. Do you think that, you know that is also an impediment behind forecasts? Because if if you're a, a leader and you receive a 75% forecast, but then you process it internally as 50%, um, that's obviously going to therefore not be very useful for your decision-making skills because you've given up a lot of um, the foresight that people have given to you. So yeah, what do you guys both make of that as, as, as an issue? Um, and how do you see that potentially being solved, you know, understanding the difference between 75 and 50. Yeah, tough one. I mean, I think it probably is a real issue for all the um, reasons you just mentioned. Um, my hunch is that that's will probably just use it, the 50-50 as a figure of speech, literally just not to mean literally 50-50, but they just slip into it to mean, well, it's between 20 and 80. Um, so I, I like to give, try to give people the benefit of the doubt and hope that that's um, what Obama was talking about and what a lot of people are talking about. But no, I, I think it, your general point, I think it gets to why it's hard for people to um, adopt this in the government. People aren't used to thinking in probabilities. Um, so forecasting just seems weird to them. <laughs> 
does that mean that we sort of need more phrases to talk about probabilities um, and sort of have like a new way of right conveying, you know, there's, you know, having some sort of quick hand to differentiate between a 50-50 and maybe a 66-34, right? Because those fundamentally are different in terms of odd ratios and events happening. So do we need to develop a different sort of common um, vernacular when it comes to conveying probabilities? Do you think that might help? Well, there is something like that. I mean, the UK has something called the um, the Intelligence Committee uh, Assessment uh, Committee in the UK has something called the Probability Yardstick, which is like a uh, which tries to do that, right? So uh, it 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 provides standard words that you can use um, <clears throat> to convey a range uh, a, pro a range of probabilities. Right there, you go. You've got it right there. So um, so that's it. And in fact, that little um, uh, picture you have on the right uh, there. Uh, that is printed out on a little credit card size um, paper, like a little card, and that is given to analysts. Uh, so if they're in a meeting and they ever need to refer to, uh, to to these terms, they can whip it out of their wallet and they will have it on a on a card, and they can say, "Oh yes, uh, I, I think it is highly likely that such and such." And so they're encouraged to do that. So that does exist, and it is used. I think it was um, uh, most recently used. I might be wrong about this, but I, I think it was most recently used in the Novi truck poisoning uh, in Salisbury in, in the UK, where those uh, chaps, uh, uh, that exile was uh, was poisoned with NEV agent, and um, the assessment was was given, and it was read out in, in the House of Commons that it was like, you know, highly likely that uh, we think that the GRU was responsible for it. And that was, um, <clears throat> and that was like a, you know, a, 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 yeah, almost certain, in fact, I think it was. Uh, was was used, and that was the sort of technical use of almost certain, but to, to mean greater than ninety five percent confidence uh, of the analyst. So that does exist, but I would say that um, the actual flow of information to decision makers uh, is horrible. I mean, it, it, it is awful compared to like this is great, right? But th th this is all intra intelligence community. So this is like mostly this is analysts talking to each other, and that's great if they're able to communicate more clearly between themselves, that's obviously a, a bonus. But um, the, if you look at the pandemic as an example, we, you know, this is the first crisis that we've had since, um, you know, this kind of revolution in forecasting and, and assessment improvements. And you can really see where the, the holes are. And, um, you know, you know the, the, the information that leaders are getting is terrible, uh, you know, really, really terrible, not because their own intelligence assessments aren't any good necessarily, but, you know, half the time they don't read them. Uh, they, they, they're getting stuff from the newspaper and they really believe it. And, and if you, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and that is much more present in public. So if you think about, you know, a, a senior person, a senior decision maker uh, and their day, uh, they probably watch some TV. They probably read the papers. They probably, if it's the UK, they'll have the radio on the main political programs on the radio in the mornings. They probably listen to that. So the amount of media exposure they're getting is, is probably way more time than the amount of briefings, uh, time spent in briefings from their own analysts. So, so actually the public message is can be terrible, but it, just in terms of the amount of minutes it's repeated, the number of times it's repeated over the day, that will drown out the internal assessment. And you can see that with COVID, that these you know, terrible assessments that are dreamt up by a newspaper columnist, right, sitting, it's like almost trying to be provocative or whatever, and, and those will, will you know, we'll, we'll, we'll feed into a decision in a way that shouldn't happen. So 
it, it, you're not just trying to provide a better intelligence assessment, but, but the amount of information going into decision makers isn't just formal assessments, it's all of this other stuff, much of which is so bad uh, and just such low quality, but it's voluminous. And, um, and, 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 that, and when you look at the terribly really bad decisions, a lot of it is, is driven by that. Not all of it, of course, but a lot of it is. And, and you can really see that, that um, <clears throat> improving the language in those assessments is great, but um, the, the, the problem is probably a lot more basic. And I think that's true of most types of problems is that, that you, can, you can tinker at the edges and you can create like really, really nice technology that's gonna be really helpful. But if you find that, uh, if, you, if you want to make the, you know, the lowest hanging fruit probably isn't even improving forecasting. It's probably, you know, preventing newspapers being delivered to, to, to government buildings. So like, that's probably the way you could improve is that the, the decision quality that much better. Yeah. I, I don't want to get too political, but I just feel like I've read a lot, like articles from like 2010 about how the information flow from analysts and the intelligence community to you know, decision makers and policy makers needs to be better. And I feel like if I read articles in the early 2000s and in the 90s, I might also be reading um, the same thing. Um, besides cutting off newspapers um, to our lawmakers and maybe having them make some forecasts publicly themselves, um, do you see sort of other steps in terms of um, improving the quality of information um, that is being fed into uh, decision makers and maybe ways to reduce sort of the noise that they're actually, you know, interpreting as positive signals? I mean, that's, that's outside my area of expertise, but I, I, I think, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a big problem. And I mean, the, the issue as well is that there are just very, very few consequences for also for providing bad information or bad signals. So uh, again, looking, I mean, Looking at the pandemic, this this is sort of the perfect thing where we can test all these theories, right? We we have this crisis, lots of things were unforeseen, lots of things were foreseen. You can follow all the decisions, and certainly in the UK, because there's this tremendous transparency about publish, publishing all these minutes, you can actually track ideas as they make their way through different committees, and then they appear, you know, in this in this, in this panel, and then it suddenly it pops up a week later in this thing. You can follow it all through, and um, I, I think the, the 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 big difficulty is there really aren't any like if you had been on any of those panels and you had made very accurate assessments, there really wasn't any benefit to you in doing that at all. So the, the, the person who I think has basically the strongest track record of all of the UK government scientists is a guy called Stephen Riley, who I rate very highly, but nobody knows who he is. I mean, he is a good guy, right? But nobody knows who he is. He's not famous. He's not, there's, there's really no recognition. Um, he's not been appointed to any of these uh, he's not going to get a knighthood. He's not going to get um, any of the rewards that gave to the people who made horrible predictions, like terrible, catastrophic predictions that we were totally confident in and resulted in these massive waves of deaths. And, uh, you know, and so there's really no, um, there's, there's not really much in it for you, right? So even if you want to give a better assessment, there's really very little reward in, in, in doing so. I, you know, you, you, you're, you're likelihood of getting... Um, a promotion or a, or a new job or a, or an honor in the UK of course you know people are always thinking about being becoming sir somebody something uh, or lord somebody um yeah that really doesn't depend on your forecast accuracy so it's uh it's very difficult but I but I don't know how you could change that because 
the you know the 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 you know there is there just isn't that much appetite for it. I mean, this is the kind of black pill of of forecasting, right? This is the the kind of doomer approach, it, which um, which I think Robin Hanson said, which is you know you were able to make all of you know good judgment projects and other projects that have, that have happened. You were able to make all of this progress in in making forecasting more accurate by doing some quite simple things um, and just you know teasing out which of the simple things are effective. But that was kind of there waiting to be discovered for quite a long time. And his interpretation was that it, of that was people don't really care that much, right? If anybody cared, you, that wouldn't have been possible for you to make those discoveries in 2015, <laughs> right? Somebody would have got there before you. And that tells you that people are not, are not that bothered and they're not really motivated to, to find out about that stuff. Um, otherwise somebody would have done it already. So that, I mean, I'm not sure I share that view, but uh, I, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that approach having seen uh you know in in the government that it's very very hard because you're trying to build a chain of accountability uh all the way back to the ballot box and it's just incredibly difficult right so am i going to vote differently because you know the government appoints people to that you know the, the scientific panels and then assess their accuracy and then you know the, the chain is very long it's very hard for for that to to to, to kind of have meaningful accountability or, or feedback so i think it's difficult if you don't have a kind of immediate financial benefit to getting it right and even there it's tricky it, it just is really hard I, I i don't really have a particularly strong suggestion other than to say let's have a different political economy <laughs> but that doesn't really help does it <laughs> um so now i think we want to turn to maybe a little bit uh and hear a bit about that project um tom we tried giving our hand at describing maybe at a high level in the introduction but if you wouldn't mind tom just giving a a brief overview for the people who are watching about what maybe is and then also um, what the Delphi method is of forecasting since uh, you know maybe has has automated that system uh, to make it a bit easier to, to practice. Yeah, I'll try to um, give I'll give a high level overview Michael can fill in what I miss the um, It maybe is an app that anyone can use. It's free. It allows you to do forecasting um, with your own organization or group. And what it's attempted to do is take the best of what was learned from the Good Judgment Project and make it more um, realistic for a real world application. So in the, good, in the Good Judgment Project, people collected forecasts every day. If you wanted to do well, you had to maybe devote two hours, I probably devoted two hours a day to forecasting. That's not realistic in a, uh, a bank or a government institution. But what you can do is you can make spot forecasts. Um, so we, we've, we've changed that with the app. The, the app only asks you to make a forecast once and then it, it scores it later. We've um, made the comments um, anonymous so that when you're looking at what other people think, you don't know who said it. And that can avoid anchoring on you know, what your boss thinks or trying to um, just do what the what someone important thinks. You know, you might be you'll it, it gives you the leeway to be more honest in your assessment. Um, what else does it do? It it the Delphi process overall. It, it's basically automating the Delphi process. So the Delphi process, everyone makes their first forecast independently. I guess that's a key step before you see what everyone else thinks, and that leads to a wider diversity of opinions. Again, where you helps you avoid groupthink. Um, then 
you get to see what everyone thinks, but anonymized, you vote for it, and then you can do an update round. And one of the interesting things is you can measure whether the updated forecast is more accurate than the initial forecast. So when Michael and I do this with a group, it typically might be 15 minutes for a certain question. And you can empirically measure whether the group's forecast got better um, during that 15 minute session, because you have the group median for round one and you have the updated group median. And of course, one question doesn't matter, but over many questions, you can see whether your round two accuracy scores are better. And what's the benefit of, so you say to avoid um, groupthink is why in the, Delph, in the Delphi method, everyone gives their first forecast independently and then they see everyone, then they update. Um, is there sort of in the Delphi process a point where after rounds of updates, there comes a consensus or um, is consensus done by aggregation of forecasts? Well, I, yeah, I, th I think it really doesn't matter whether there's a consensus. That's one of the, the beauties of forecasting. You can, um, even in the Good Judgment Project, I was on a team and you uh, discuss it and people will just hold different opinions and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. At the end of the day, you'll get to see who gets the uh, better score. Is there a benefit in terms of, you know, trying to get to a consensus? Have you guys noticed that either with people that have used maybe or your background in super forecasting, um, if you sort of eventually reach a consensus, if that ends up being more or less accurate than if just everyone kind of sticks to their own beliefs throughout and just sort of updates based on what they read from other people? That's a good, it's a good question. I don't, um, I guess I've almost never seen people reach a consensus. I, I've maybe one of the learnings um, from the Good Judgment Project is I was really surprised at how wide the um, range of forecasts was, even on my own team with totally reasonable people, like discussed, everyone had the same information and just, you know, thought different things. I mean, it was normally you were within the same range, but in a 13 person team, um, it was entirely reasonable to have one person forecasting 5% and someone else forecasting 40%. Um, that would not surprise me at all with where the group median was maybe 20. So, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and for, for both of you guys, um, as you sort of were working on maybe um, and sort of building a platform uh, and a elicitation platform for forecasts, um, did you learn sort of new things about the forecasting process? Um, has that sort of informed the approach that you make to forecasts um, by sort of working on the sort of more technical aspect of forecasting? Um, and sort of what, what were those and how did you learn them? Sort of by the same token, could you also speak to just the process of, of building something like this, um, which are the steps that you went when you first had the idea to sort of the execution? Um, well, I think the basic, the Delphi process um, has been around since the 1960s, the uh, invented by the Rand Institute. Um, but, you know, there was no way, if you wanted to follow it, the, my understanding is most people who did it would do it over long periods of time. Um, they do paper and pencil because it's hard to 
collect everyone's independent forecasts otherwise. Um, and so this, the making the app allows you to actually run the full Delphi process in a room, um, you know, in 15 minutes. Um, and in terms, in terms of making it, basically, I had wanted to see this app for a very long time. And so I essentially taught myself um, some web development, basically starting from ground zero in order to make this app. So that's why it's still a bit uh, rough around the edges. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we think it's great. And it doesn't seem like there are many other, if any other, you know, platforms or suites of tools like this out there on the market. So I think... Um, yeah, it serves a very important purpose, which is really useful. Um, and, and Michael, we, wait, I was wondering what, what sort of you took away from the, the forecasting process and what you've um, thought about differently since working on maybe, because uh, you seem to have nodded your head quite a bit uh, in the question. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think, um, I, I think that the, the, yeah, the surprise is always the user you, the user reaction, right? I, I think that's a common thing that people find when they try and build something and then expose it to people. And you're often surprised by how people use it or how they react to it. And I think that the, it's a thing that Tom mentioned, which is, I, I think a lot of people don't believe that there are, that it's possible to improve for forecasting with some simple tools. Like I, I think they, you know, empirically it is possible and people don't reject that information. But they don't grok it. They don't really feel like that's doable. And uh, I think the thing that most surprised me is how people's reaction to seeing that empirical information that you, you know, you, because all the forecasts are recorded, it's all there, it's unambiguous. You can go back and say, look, here's what you thought uh, before you had a chance to discuss it already. And you know, here's what you thought afterwards. You can see the improvement. You can see all of these effects. And I think, um, uh, yeah, I, I think the surprise is, is, is how in doubt that was for people and then how, what, what a big deal it is to suddenly see, oh, that it is empirically true that we perform better as a team by doing some of those fairly simple things that are not, you know, they're not hugely onerous. It's not like you have to go and disappear for a day and, and you know, have some horrible hard work process, right? Like just doing some simple things along the meeting that you would normally do can get you quite a big big benefit and i think seeing yeah seeing people experience that and learn that uh, when they previously didn't has, has was the kind of big surprise for me is how yeah how how i'm not articulating this very well yeah the the seeing people basically get it <laughs> that they didn't get it because we always got it right yeah you know, the, the cuts of knowledge right we've been in this world a long time so uh, we thought this was all done and dusted and everybody would be on board. So seeing people be uncertain and become more certain is very nice. What, what I think is interesting is I think most of the people we've worked with, they it, once you experience it, it means a lot more. It's very hard to describe to someone in the abstract. They don't quite get it until they do it. And then once they do it, they almost everyone kind of agrees it's a benefit. But most places still won't actually do it themselves. Even if you give them a free app, and even if they've been through the process, they agree it works, they still won't do it. And my only conclusion is that there's these hurdles. It's a behavior change um, that's just really hard to do. And my analogy I always think of is like, is like a diet. Like I might wanna lose 10 pounds and you could come to me and give me a diet that's gonna help me do that. But I might not do that. 
most people probably won't do that because it requires a behavior change on my part. And that's really hard. Dieting is hard. But now imagine you're asking a group to change. So now it's not even an individual. It's the whole group has to do something different. It's that much harder. It, and I think that, honestly, that, that's my big takeaway from maybe and even Good Judgment Project. It's just really hard to, um, really hard to change behavior. And Tom, you've talked a bit before, um, you know, sort of the time horizon for forecasting as a practice becoming more mainstream. Do you feel like having a tool like this, I know you said it's still rough around the edges, but, you know, if it were to be more, more refined, do you think a tool like this that sort of minimizes the friction between your average person in a company, let's say, and forecasting might speed up that, speed up that timeline a bit? Yeah, well, that's, that's the hope and goal. And, you know, we, we do... It's interesting at the beginning of uh, a year ago, I think no one was interested in forecasting um, themselves because everyone was scrambling to deal with coronavirus. We have seen more people using the app um, in the last three months. So that's just an interesting data point. I think people are less overwhelmed. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd love it if people use it even at this point, happy to support people honestly just for free because I think it makes the world a better place and I find it rewarding. Um, but maybe just one other like aspect of, of using like this app is you can get, you, one, you can see whether the forecasts are more accurate. It provides the scoring and calibration curves, but I think it allows meetings to be more effective even aside from that, because you can, you can ask a question um, and then everyone gets to write a comment anonymously and then everyone gets to vote for the comments. So Michael and I have seen instances, um, even firsthand, where you ask a question about management that probably no one is gonna be brave enough to raise their hand and say something really critical about their boss um, when everyone knows it's coming from you. But using this process, they wrote a fairly critical comment and then it went to the voting and it was the top voted comment. So, it uncovered this, um, this sentiment, which probably wouldn't get uncovered in any other way. Basically, someone was allowed, one person that was brave enough to write a super critical comment, no one else did. But then when it came to voting, everyone, again, the voting is anonymous, that comment got really highly upvoted. And it was really clear, like, okay, guess what, guys? Everyone in this room is pretty concerned about this thing and no one has the guts to say it because it's really risky. And so that's a benefit that you get, again, from using the app that has nothing to do with scoring that I think can make uh, meetings um, more efficient, more effective. Can you uh, prevent certain people from voting on, uh, voting on a comment? So if you're talking about management, can you uh, say, ah, these people can't vote, so then we don't tank uh, the question score and it can still <laughs> show up? Well, if not, the way, the, the, the way it is, the way it is now, everyone can vote on everything, and and it's um it's coded so that no one, except for the admin, who's me, can see um what happens. So it's it's hidden from anyone who uses the app. There is no way to um, uncover who said what or who voted for what. That's very good. I I, I definitely can think of a few instances myself when that feature would have would have helped. Um, especially with meetings. But, um, but again, but again uh, just, to, just to circle back, it, 
it's, um, it uncovers these unsaid things. And if you really want to get to the truth, it helps you. But if you're the boss, that could be pretty risky, right? Because now you're actually giving everyone a way to say something pretty critical about yourself. And that can be scary. Uh, risky in terms of a personal, for a company perspective, it's obviously the opposite of risky because now you're understanding, you know, you have more complete information on people's right. assessments. But yes, yeah. from a personal yeah. e and ego perspective, very Absolutely. risky. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that, I think that those kind of fears um, and risks can play into the lack of adoption. And that actually kind of goes back. Um, it was, I think it was David who was uh, David Mannheim in episode two of the right side. And maybe you said that, you know, forecasters really have to be sort of detached from the outcome. Like you don't, you are the, you don't care if a certain event happens or not. And it almost seems like in order to, adopt forecast you have to sort of take a detached um personal view on things that are being forecasted that sort of you're asking questions on too it's not just from the forecaster's perspective but in some way from the consumer and the elicitor for the forecast as well would you would, would you to agree on that um assessment too Yes, I, I think I would. Um, I mean, so on the general side, we, we know that some people are better calibrated as forecasters, and perhaps that's partly because they find it easier to do that. They find it easier to think in this kind of abstract, detached way. Um, we did actually have a look at this. I mean, my colleagues and I, um, before, we, we wanted to see, we were trying to see if, like, if you were forecasting something that was going to happen in your country, if that had some impact on your accuracy, because you can think of a really nice story about why it would and why it wouldn't, right? So like, if it's in your country, you're getting all this extra information, you're talking to people, you hear rumors, you have friends who tell you things, that might really help you forecast something right, more accurately. But at the same time, you're also getting bombarded and overwhelmed with information and all this partisan stuff is gonna be coming at you. Whereas if you are looking at it from outside that, that country, it's much easier for you to be detached and not pay too much attention to this. Uh, you know, people aren't trying to propagandize to you or, or all that sort of stuff. So you can make these stories. We never really found any anything there. It would have, you would have had to have a really big effect for it to be visible. But um, I think there's an element of that. But I think you 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 draw on something really important um, when you say that the, the, the characteristics of a good forecaster are also the characteristics of a good forecast consumer. And we know that not everybody is a good forecaster, and it kind of makes sense to think that not everybody is a good forecast consumer either. So it's it's going to be you know some people are just going to find that inherently hard. To, to speak to a specific example of what Tom was just talking about, um, looking at the pandemic again, that's the first crisis we've had since you know this has all happened. So it's a really nice case study. Um, so what happened there is uh, in the UK at least, right? Initially there was this plan to just let the the, the country get infected. That was the standing pandemic plan was to not really do anything to prevent infection. In fact, the, the UK pandemic planning said, there's no point trying to prevent, you, you cannot prevent a pandemic. So just, it's gonna happen. So that was the kind of starting point. That's the, the anchoring position. So the science team who came in, they started with this document that they were given the, the, the sort of start of that position. And then gradually they, they, they changed uh, to a view saying, no, you, you probably can stop this, or at least you can slow it down and, and here are things you can do. So, this, this gradual change uh, happened. 
And obviously, the longer that it took for that change to happen, the worse the pandemic got until they they switched um, views. So the the ideal problem that Tom and I would love to have been there is, you know, the, the first moment that the first members of those panels start to say, are we 100% sure that this is right? Are we sure that this is not possible? Right? We're hearing from other countries that they are going to attempt to stop the virus to slow it down. Are we absolutely certain that this can't be done in the UK? The first person to say, hey, I think we're wrong about this. And we've been allowing this disease to spread, thinking it's inevitable. And in fact, it's not. And we can stop this and we really have to. That is a very difficult position for that person to be in. And, uh, you know, we can't prove it, but I think it's likely that whoever it was that said that person, we don't know who that is, somebody did, uh, that they would have said it sooner had they had the opportunity to do that honestly. And there were probably a lot of private doubts circling. And in fact, that's true. A lot of people who've written about their experience of the pandemic, um, uh, like uh, Kelsey Piper, uh, who writes at Box, said the same thing, that she privately had this uh, feeling that this was going to get pretty bad and it was going to be a problem, but didn't write about it publicly for a little while because there was all this social pressure to not do so, which is not a criticism of her at all because that pressure is really heavy and I can totally understand why people would experience it. But um, I think giving an out, giving an anonymous out for people to vent some, to, to, you know, to voice some concern without you know being embarrassed or if they're wrong, that you know, they, people are going to look at them like they're an idiot or, or whatever. Having this anonymous way to raise a concern is super important. And I think when you look at these changing assessments and how quickly they change, it's really hard to see a world in which having this anonymized commenting and anonymized voting doesn't help that change happen much, much faster. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Um, now we are at the very special part of the episode, which is the rapid fire round. Um, all guests on this podcast have to make a series of rapid fire uh, predictions and Especially in this episode, we're making two changes to the rapid fire round. Uh, first of all, we're going to normalize uh, the resolution dates on all these questions. Uh, historically, we've been asking in the next, you know, X years or months. We're going to now start putting in dates so we can start tracking uh, everyone's rapid fire forecast under the same questions. And you guys are the first two that'll be uh, asked two new questions as well. Um, so let's start off with the first one, which is by. Uh, 2026, what is the likelihood that Russia annexes territory, more territory in Eastern Europe? 2026. Uh, okay, well, we should practice what we preach. I'm going to write mine down uh, and you can do the same time so that we don't throw each other up. Oh yes. How about well, how about we, we 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 give you guys the four questions and then we'll do a reveal of all of them at the same time. All right. Uh, yeah. Would would the current would the current Ukraine count as an annexation? Yeah, it would. Um, if it it was more territory from Ukraine. Okay. Correct. Um, the second question is what is the likelihood by 2030 there is um definitive evidence, a clear scientific consensus um, of evidence of alien life. Um, this could be single cellular organisms. This could be um. From yeah, from all the way from single cell organisms all the way to you know UFO, uh, UFOs and Roswell and all of that stuff anywhere on that spectrum, and this could be evidence of currently living life or evidence of past living life. It doesn't have to currently be alive. That's by twenty thirty. 
2030? Uh, the next question, this is a brand new one, and it's a question that we've forecasted ourselves on Metaculous Mondays. Uh, what is the likelihood that a majority, so four um, of the following countries, United States, United Kingdom, Japan, Canada, Australia, South Korea, and what's the last one? It's the quad and the five eyes that they boycott mm -hmm. the Beijing Olympics. US, UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, sorry, Japan and South Korea. No offense, Japan and South, I mean, New Zealand, apologies about forgetting. Um, and then the last question is, what is the likelihood that Saudi Arabia and Israel establish official diplomatic relations and normalize relations by 2024? 2025. 2025, sorry. 25, okay. Okay, all right, give me a minute. All right. Make a forecast that the median of Michael's and my forecast will be better than either one of us. <laughs> it's a pretty good forecast. All right, are we um, uh, are are we out. ready? Pencils down, as it as it were. Yeah. I mean, I had twenty, ten, fifteen, thirty. Okay, so let, let 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 let's do this question by question. Andrew, do you want to? Go through them. Sure. Um, so I mean, we can start from the bottom, not sure, back to the first question. Um, so what did y'all both have for the question regarding Saudi Arabia and Israel normalizing diplomatic ties by 2025? 30%. Oh, I, I was at 20% for that. So an aggregate of 25, okay. I, I I, I feel like I have to know my, my forecast. I literally know nothing about it. So my forecast is literally reading into the fact that you're asking this question, meaning uh, um, it's this weird double psychology. My forecast. It's a meta, very meta. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael, what was your sort of like one line rationale? Um, that, well, that there are some, there are increasing the friendly relations. UAE is going to do it. Maybe that takes you to one in five, that was my reasoning. Awesome. Um, so let's go to the second question then. Um, what did you all both have for the question regarding the Olympic boycott with the five eyes and the quad? I was at 35. I was at 15%. Ooh, okay. a little bit more divergence there. One line rationales. Uh, Tom, why don't, why don't you go first? Again, same as before, I literally know nothing. So <laughs> I'm literally starting with a base rate of like boycott is small, but like you're asking me the question. So it's probably higher than I would have thought. <laughs> and Michael? Uh, well, there's a fair number of countries to boycott. Boycotts have happened in the past, like during these political tensions. It doesn't, to, uh, and then, you know, the tensions are going up a little bit at the moment. So that's what led me to, to that conclusion. It, like generally, you know, it's, it's not that uncommon for somebody to boycott somebody's Olympics. Um, and 
it, it also just seems like a lot of the norms are a little bit in flux and so unusual things seem to be happening a little bit more because the pandemic and the and the uh the tensions are a little bit higher so my kind of historical base rate uh when i adjusted up a little bit from there great um for the penultimate question um alien life by 2030 what do we have for that question so can you remind me just uh i, I i'm sure you did say but i've forgotten i was just thinking about it uh, does like bacteria count or not yeah, uh yes bacteria yes as, as long as there's you know definitive evidence clear scientific consensus um and the bacteria doesn't have to be alive it can be you know old bacteria okay okay and by and 2030 was the kind of date for that yeah yep okay so uh, i had for that uh oh sorry do you want to no, no, you go. You go. no 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 <laughs> uh, i had 30 percent for that i'm i'm quite confident that that i you know not Massively, but I think, yeah, there's going to be a lot of missions going to new places. Uh, it seems plausible that, to me, that we might we might find something. There might be a little bit of wishful thinking on my part, but I'm I'm going to stick with my thirty. Tom, yeah, I was at ten percent. Ten percent base rate has never happened, but if it's going to happen, the most likely way, I would guess, would be finding a dead bacteria on Mars. There, there's no evidence, but at at the same time, you know, we're starting to find traces of water, the whole mm -hmm. the whole news story that got somehow no media attention that there's kind of UFOs that exist that defy our knowledge of gravity that just somehow, you know, in the midst of what was the end of 2020 and 20 and the start of 2021 kind of missed the missed the line. So I think we're actually a little closer with you, Michael, but we don't want to influence your rapid casts. Um, and then the last one is the likelihood of Russian annexation by 2026. Um, this is territory in Eastern Europe, um, not Western Europe, Asia, anywhere else. So just in that, uh, one area, um, Tom, why don't you give us your number? 20%. Okay. Um, they, they seem aggressive. I, I, I don't know much. They seem aggressive, but also things take a longer time to happen than I normally think. So that's it. <laughs> you, did you say 20% Tom? I missed it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, wow, I think this is our biggest divergence. I was at 85% that that will happen. So we, <laughs> yeah, th this is a big difference. Um, I mean, my reasoning was that there's a lot of, like there's a, you know, there's a lot of, there's a fuzzy um, border areas where it's possible to to make some gains um, that like may, wouldn't be necessarily like strategically particularly significant, but annexing some territory is a fairly low bar, and that's happened in a few different ways um, over the last ten years. And um, so it seems plausible that something. My confidence that something small would happen is is pretty high. I, I don't think it's going to be a, a huge uh, event like uh, necessarily. Um, you know, annexing Belarus or something like that would would be lower, but but taking some territory somewhere, um, that seems quite plausible. And then just because there's such a huge divergence, and Michael, you're so bullish on the uh, annexation, I just want to um, quick rapid question is currently on Metaculus. Um, there's a question on will Russia annex uh, more Ukrainian territory by 2022? The median there is 14%. Um, we actually came down 
uh, at a 6% likelihood on just Ukrainian territory. I'm wondering um, if you were just to, I think, cut down your 85% uh, across five years, you get, I think, around 17. So by the end of this year, you're looking at uh, 12% likelihood uh, of annexation by the end of the year. What would you put Ukrainian alone by 2022? Uh, Ukraine alone by 2022, I would say most of most of that would be, yeah, most of, most of my or... product, yeah, would be Ukraine. But there's also <laughs> the Baltic states. You know, sometimes there's tensions there. Belarus. It's less likely. Uh, Belarus, obviously, yeah, is the other one that that you know you got to leave a little bit of room for all of those to happen. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's Ukraine that 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 would be significant right some consolidation there's a little salience in the in the kind of de facto control line that could be cleaned up that that's that would account for most of most of my assessment is like closing some salient in the next mm -hmm. okay so you are right actually around the metaculous median right now so maybe we should rethink our forecast then because we are not super <laughs> forecasters um i know <laughs> Michael and Tom, it has been great to have both of you guys on the the twelfth episode of the Global Guessing Weekly podcast. Um, where can people find both of you guys? Uh, anything uh, exciting coming up uh, uh, in the near future that you'd like to tell our audience about? Mm, sure, go on that. Uh, well, I, I'm mostly available on Twitter at mw story story like a storybook. Uh, that's me, or that's me. Uh, uh, if you, uh, uh, I guess, yeah. If you, if you have any tips, I'm not. I'm not long since uh, been living in Taipei. So if you have any tips uh, about things to do in Taipei or people I should connect with here, then uh, then do some of my way. I've been meeting lots of friends of friends here, and it's been uh, very rewarding so far. So any Taipei tips, I'd like to hear. Yep, <clears throat> I'm on Twitter as well, and you can also uh, find our emails at at the maybe.app uh, website. You can find them if you go to maybe.com and go to the about page, you will find both of their emails there if you'd like to reach out. All right, Tom and Michael, thank you guys so much for joining us. And this was the 12th episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. Thanks, everyone. Bye.